Well, before we uh, dive into today's message, I got actually two quick announcements for everybody. Number one, um, I want to celebrate. Uh, last week, we wrapped up our commit series with our commit cards, and we had over 100 commit cards and areas turned in. So, can we just applaud uh, that? Uh, I think it's pretty incredible. For 21 days, many of you prayed and fast to see where God was leading leading you for this next year. And I think that also represents that there are many people who uh, you didn't do your homework, but it's okay. We're not going to kick you out or anything. We still love you. You're welcome. Here and we are excited to see what God does in that faithfulness. The second thing is um, some of you might have noticed a new face on our stage. He just gave us a, a communion meditation. That is Jordan Hull. He is one of our new pastors of our creative arts team. And so I want to say a special thank you to our staff, our elders, and many, many of the creative arts volunteers who helped in this process of finding uh, one of our next people to bring on our team. So can we welcome Jordan and Maya and all their kids? Uh, you'll get to see from them. We will have a more formal uh, way of introducing, which is a, a way to embarrass him to you guys here in the next couple weeks. Well, uh, the, my favorite time of the year is right around the corner, and that's because for about four days, there is only one thing that I will do, and that is watch college basketball in the form of March Madness, all right? Show of hands, how many you just like, yeah, it is glorious that the Lord hath blessed us with such an amazing event. And inevitably, at some point during the tournament, you're going to hear a color commentator say something along the lines of, this is a real David versus Goliath, Chuck. It's a one seed versus a 16, a two versus a 15. We got a battle of a mid-major versus a blue bud, but don't count them out just yet. And then they get absolutely demolished, right? And that's usually how it goes. But that phrase, David, Goliath, David versus Goliath, we use that in sports. We use it in business to represent maybe a startup company going against a seasoned company. Maybe you've heard that or used that in your own life. And it comes from a story in the life of David. Week two in the study of the life of David, we are going to unpack in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that story. That story of David and Goliath, this, this, this story about a little shepherd boy who goes toe-to-toe with a giant. And here's what I think is about to happen. So lean in for a second before, before you do anything. Lean into me. Some of you are ready to zone this out. Some of you are ready to turn off your mind because you said, I've heard this story before. Been there, done that. When I was a little kid, I colored the pictures and all that type of stuff. Don't do that. Because I think personally that we have taken the story of David Goliath and it's kind of been projected to have the wrong sort of truth or meaning. Because here's what the story of Goliath is not about. It's not about a shepherd boy who overcomes insurmountable odds and you can too if you fight with enough fervor. It's not about a giant who represents all of the hardships and trials that you will face in life. And if you shout and scream with enough faith and fervor, you too can be successful. That's not what it's about. It's about something better, something deeper, and arguably something that we all need to hear and realize is that there is a living God who works in the lives of those who choose to honor him. So don't zone me out because we're going to unpack a goodie here this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I invite you to turn with me in scripture. One of the things that we said for this series, we're going to give you just the reference. We're not going to put the words on the screen because we want you to bring your Bible with you. You can follow along on our app and take notes. You can always grab physical notes from one of our communion stations on the way in. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please stop by Guest Central on the way out and we would love to gift you one of those here this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 17 guys are you ready I'm, I'm hyped I'm super hyped I'm ready to go I don't care if you're ready I'm ready so let's go 
1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. Because that's the type of story we're in, okay? And they assembled at Sukkah. So, yeah, you can giggle if you're a junior higher. In Judah, they pitched a camp at Ephes, Damin, and Sukkah, and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. So let me just state from the outset, this is a very poor way of going to battle, is it not? This is like the old Civil War stats where, okay, you line up all your troops over here, we'll line up our troops over there, and then we just stand and fire at each other. Except they didn't have guns. So it's like, okay, you stand over here, you stand over there, and then on the count of three, we're all going to shout and run at each other towards swords. Like, sounds good to me. We don't know how to do it. And so here's the thing. is we get to this story of David and Goliath, and we've heard the story. We know the term and the phrase, what it represents, and sometimes when things like that become so regular in life and in our minds, we begin to think, well, this is just kind of like a fairy tale. This didn't really actually happen. On contraire, mon frere, this was a real place. There was a real valley with real blood being shed, real swords, and let me show you. So if you are a history person, here's a picture of the Valley of Allah, and I'm going to do some handy-dandy writing on my handy-dandy screen here. Okay, So this here is the valley, right? This little kind of horseshoe creates the Valley of Allah. So this is where it all is going to go down. Up here... That is Sukkah, or that's uh, kind of the, the, the area of Jerusalem. Over here is going to be Bethlehem, where we're going to see in a little, a little bit. Uh, Saul would have camped right here. The Philistines would have been camped over on this hill. And over in this direction is a place called Gath. And that's important because the giant in this story is from the place of Gath. And so here's the thing. This is a real place. These are real people. They would stand on this side, they would stand on this side, and they would shout. And you can watch videos in, on YouTube if you ever have the chance to go there. What you can do is you can stand in this valley and shout up, and you can audibly hear. There is a little brook that has dried up, but it runs along this edge here, so that when we get to the point of the story that says, David went down and grabbed five smooth stones, meaning skipping stones from across the water, you can see where it came from. This is a real story with real significance, but I don't want us to miss the true power that lies within. Picking back up in verse 4 this morning. So a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not the servants of Saul? If you're reading your Bible, highlight, circle, underline, annotate, servants of Saul. It's going to be important. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become the subjects and serve us. And the Philistines uh, then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing this, the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites peed their pants, they were dismayed, and they were terrified. <laughs> Here's kind of what's going on here. The scene is getting set up. And a lot of this setup goes to the sheer size 
of this human being. Six and a half cubits would mean nine feet tall. So if we got Logan out here, we just double him basically, okay? Nine feet tall. It said his armor would have weighed 125 pounds. Go back to the oasis, grab your average fifth grader, tape him to your back, and walk around. His spear, it's at the tip of his spear, 600 shekels, which is 15 pounds. Now, I number what you were thinking. Number one, where did you get this sweet weight? It weighs 15 pounds. It was a gift from somebody in the congregation who should not be named. But yes, I use it. And then I was like, I'm going to paint it black so it looks more manly. But I was like, you know what? It's cool. We'll just leave it. 15 pounds, right? 15 pounds isn't nothing. You go, to, you go bowling, right? It's like the heaviest ball you give. The tip of his spear weighed this. Everywhere he went, he carried this like it was nothing. And he could hurl it with such force and velocity that it could pierce anything that he threw. So here it is. The author of the story is, is building this story. This man cannot be touched. And he says something interesting here. It intrigues me, and I hope it intrigues you. He says to the servants of Saul, I defy you. He doesn't say to the armies of Israel at first. He doesn't say those who follow Yahweh, the Lord, the God, as, as they says the servants of Saul. And we begin to pull back a layer of the onion to realize perhaps that's a little bit of the problem. Saul was their king. Saul was their Lord. Saul was their savior. It was no longer God. You see, when the people of God are no longer known for their God, that becomes a problem. When the people of God are no longer known for their faith, that becomes a problem. When the people of God are no longer known to carry the attributes of their heavenly father, but they're more accustomed to the things or the people in this world, that is a problem. And here's the battle plan. It's pretty simple. Hey, why waste all these men, all this bloodshed? You just pick your best soldier to come fight me, says Goliath. So literally the guy's like, hey, let's play real-life battle bots. Cool? He says, you pick your best soldier, they'll come and fight me, we'll, we'll, put, we'll put us in the ring, and then we'll just duke it out. You guys remember battle bots? It was like the coolest show ever because it was like, okay, you can make robots, I can make robots, we're going to make robots that kill each other, we're going to put them in the cage, and then they're going to fight, and then only one robot comes outstanding. That's what the plan was. And whoever loses has to become slaves and servants of the other team. And the people of Israel, especially the soldiers in this, they are scared to death. They're dismayed, verse 11 says. Because all they see is a nine-foot man. He's probably super hairy. He's got a big old chest, massive arms. The tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds. It doesn't matter that he's just dissed them. It doesn't matter that he's dissed their God. They can't get past his outward appearance. There's this fancy word called exegesis, and it's just this term that means how do we take what's in the Bible, understand it, and apply it to our lives. The whole process of that is called exegesis. Every week we preach, we preach from the Bible, and we preach exegetically, meaning we go to the text, here's what the text says, here's how we apply it to us. And there's a golden rule of exegesis which says this, which is it cannot mean to us today what it did not mean to them being the original audience. Because the Bible was not written to us. We just happened to get it you know, a couple thousands of years later. And so the original audience, think about this, when they are reading this story for the first time, what did we read last week? What was the story we heard last week? 
Chapter 16, verse 7. Remember, that's the thesis. Every single week it's going to come. What was the thesis? What was God's whole point? What is the world doing wrong? And what have the people of Israel forgotten? Don't look on the outside. Look on the inside. God doesn't play by the world's rules. God doesn't do what the rest of the world does. And God has made a point. I'm going to anoint myself a new king because his heart, his innards are directed towards me. Whereas everything else, including your current king, King Saul, gets so consumed with the outside and the externals. And so, so as, as, as David and Goliath, as Goliath is getting, here's how big he is and strong he is and fast he is and burly he is. And then it says in verse 11 that the Israelites were fearful and dismayed. Alarms should be going off in our head. No, 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 no. Don't fall for it again. Didn't we just read about that? Didn't we just see it? Didn't we just hear that God plays by different rules? Don't fall for it, people of God. Don't focus on the externals when God has made it abundantly clear. It's about what starts in here that matters most. And Goliath will become another example of chapter 16, verse 7, being put to the test. And this is what the story is all about, is that the biggest battle doesn't start on what's on the outside, it starts in the heart. And this is usually where the story starts to go awry and we get some good sounding meaning, but it's not actually what it means. From the outset, we forget that it's about the heart over everything else. That God has made it abundantly clear. I care about your hearts, no matter what you see or what is going on on the outside. Painting a very vivid picture of insurmountable odds, but those odds aren't the giant in front of them, it's the giant inside of them. Because they have forgotten the cardinal rule of living in the kingdom of God, which is there is a living God who is alive, who is active, who will not be mocked, and we would do well to honor him with our lives. Verse 12 continues. Now David, there he is, was the son of an Ephethite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab. The second, remember Eliab from last week? Dude was a hunk, right? Okay. The second, Abinadab. The third was Shaman. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine, being Goliath, came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry on to their camp. So for 40 days, every morning, every evening, Goliath comes out and he shouts, I defy you, Israel, who will fight me? That's probably what he sounds like. For 40 days, nobody does anything. For a month and a half, nobody has any courage, nobody has any boldness. And David's three oldest brothers are there. And David is sent yet again as just an errand boy, a little peasant. Hey, you stay home and take care of the sheep. You stay home and guard the flock while the real men go off to war and do the important stuff. And then his dad says, hey, they're probably getting hungry because for 40 days they've just been peeing their pants. So they're probably hungry and thirsty. So take them more sustenance so they continue to be scared and pee their pants. 
And the interesting thing is at this point, David's been anointed king. His brothers watched him get anointed. Yet somehow David seems okay with it. There is no, hey, dad, remember who I'm going to be? Dad, how dare you? What do you, what do you think you're doing? Don't you realize they're going to serve me in the future? I'm not going to play errand boy. I'm not going to play Uber Eats on my donkey and go deliver them some bread and some juice. That is so beneath me. But David is not bothered. For right now, we see that there's something different. Like, like think about it. If you were anointed king and someone said, can you take people who are going to be your subjects some bread? How would you at least want to respond on the inside? But David goes along because he knows the condition of his heart is what matters most. Picking up in verse 23. And so as he was talking with them. So David takes the bread, he goes to the brothers, and he overhears these conversations. Goliath and the Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw that man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel, and the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his whole family from taxes, to which a lot of us were like, what? How do I not have to pay taxes? That sounds amazing. And so here's Saul at this point, right? For 40 days, nobody has had the courage, not even Saul himself, has to go fight this giant. And Saul says, okay, I don't want to die, but you want to, you can die. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you $10,000 if you go fight him. Nobody takes it. Okay. I'll give you a million dollars. Nobody goes out there. Okay. $10 million. Nobody takes him up on it. He's okay, the money's not working. How about sex? I'll give you one of my daughters. They're all beautiful. They're gorgeous. You can pick any one that you want. Go ahead. $10 million plus one of my daughters. No one takes him up on it. He's okay, I'm running out of ideas and options. Okay, $10 million, one of my daughters. You get to be royalty in my family, and then you don't have to pay taxes. How does that sound? And at least a couple guys send an email. Tell me more about this tax thing. No? Okay, your whole family doesn't have to pay taxes, and nobody bites. Saul essentially gets up, and he says, I'll give you sex, I'll give you money, I'll give you power. All you got to do is go fight this giant. What say you? And nobody takes him up on it. You ever play that game of like, hey, for a million dollars, would you? It's like, for a million dollars, would you jump out of a moving car? For a million dollars, would you jump off this cliff? For a million dollars, would you jump off this boulder? I don't know, it's usually like jumping, but that's, you know... For a million dollars, would you slap your spouse in front of your in-laws? For a million dollars, would you cheat on the ACT? Some of you are like, it's better than trying. <laughs> See, there's a limit to what sex, money, and power can do to motivate us in our life. They're all external things that we all crave and desire to some point. And Saul knows this, and he's trying as best as he can to get somebody to take the bait, and there's no one who does. Verse 26 David asked, highlight, circle, underline, and right next to it, David talks. 
Because at this point, he hasn't spoken a word yet. Well, in his life, he has. But at this point in Scripture, he's been anointed king. This is the first time, and pay close attention to, this is the first time that David speaks in the Bible. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Highlight living God. And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for him, sex, money, power, the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with them, he burned with anger and asked him, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those (coughs) few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David, can I even speak? And he turned away to someone else and brought up the same man, and then the man answered him as before, yes, sex, money, power. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David's first words in the Bible, the man after God's own heart, a king better than Saul, someone who was going to lead and guide the people of Israel back to a right relationship with God. His first words in the Bible was, we get what? Hold up. You're telling me we get sex, money, and power if we go fight this man. You're telling me that this uncircumcised Philistine, heathen, pagan of a man who's defying my God, and all I got to do is go fight him and survive, and I get sex, money, and power virtually to no limit. Do you find this interesting? The man after God's own heart, he's so pure, he's so uh, uh, naive, but ignorance is bliss. The first words out of his mouth. Yeah, I'll do it for some sex and some money and some power. Absolutely, I will. Yeah, I want to honor God with my life. No one should, should defy my God, but sex, money, power, that sounds phenomenal. And in this notion, I am greatly encouraged and also challenged at the same time by David. I am encouraged because he becomes so much more realistic. Show of hands, how many of you would do something for sex, money, or power? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. Because I know you would. Because that's the truth. David's just like you and I. We've built him up to be this man that he is not, who has zero flaws, who was perfect. Be like David. It's like, I can be like David. (laughs) It's also concerning. Because my life, just like his, and and I would assume many of ours, sex, money, power, chicks and bucks. They pull at our heartstrings. They tempt us quite a bit. You see, I'm encouraged because here and after God's own heart, and I can say I can relate to that, those temptations, those urges, I can be greedy. And yet he was still a man after God's own heart. And what David's life is going to show us in this story, and then it's going to be contrasted later on. What David gets right is so simple that he refers to himself as a servant of the living God, not a servant of Saul. He's an army of Yahweh in that army, not the army of Saul. David's heart desires God. And he's still intrigued by sex, money, and power. But when we choose 
to honor God over our fleshly desires, we will see amazing things happen. But when we reverse those priorities, when we put our desires for sex, money, and or power over our heart and honor for God, that's when disaster strikes. David becomes all too more familiar in this story, picking up in verse 32. So David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are but a young man, and he has been to war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. And I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. There it is again, highlight it. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Here's this interaction. David says, I've heard the offer. Saul, yo, I'm your guy, I'm in. And Saul looks at him and says, you but a wee lad. You ain't never been to war. But I don't want to go. This man's been battling since he was your age. And David says, yeah, you ever seen a bear? I've killed lions. And before we can even begin to assume, like, oh, maybe there is something to this David guy. Maybe he's got, like, that lean strength, you know? Yeah, maybe he's not the biggest or buffest dude, but he's got that lean strength. He's like a crossfitter, you know? He says, I've killed them both, but it was my God who saved me then. It was my God who rescued me then. And this uncircumcised Philistine who defies that same God, I will honor that God with my life and he will rescue me now. He will fight for me now as he did then. So think about this. Think about being Saul with this teenage boy who comes up to you and your kingdom is on the line. Your pride, your ego, your status is all on the line. And Doogie Hauser walks in. For those of you who are a little bit older, you got that reference, Okay. Anyone under the age of 30 is like, who's that? Justin Bieber walks in and says, I will fight the giant. Would you really, like, send that dude? Like, of all the people. Like, if somebody came to me, all right, Eric, it's real life battle bots. You can pick any person in the human race. Who are you going with? I was like, what's The Rock doing? Is Brian Erlacher? can he come out of retirement for, like, just, like, 10 minutes for me? Because that would be awesome. Think about the low point in Saul's life that he's willing to send out a teenager who's never actually been to war. And that speaks to where he was in his own heart. Better you than me. Maybe that'll give someone else a little bit of courage and I can send a real warrior out there. And so it's like, okay, David, you can go. But first, let's go to my tent. And I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to make a real man out of you. He's pulling a Mulan here, Okay. And he's like, all right, here's, I'm going to give you my helmet and, and, and my armor and my shield and my sword. I'm going to give you everything you need to be a real warrior. Yet it's not even on Saul, first of all. And David puts it all in. He's saying, this ain't, this, this ain't it. This ain't where I've been. This isn't where it got me to this point. I'll be fine on my own. And he runs off to battle. And here it is, the moment we've been waiting for, verse 40. It says, then, so David, he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones 
from the stream and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little bit more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day... I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild, uh, wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran, ran quickly towards battle in the line to meet him, reaching to his fanny pack, He grabbed out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And without a sword in his hand, he struck the Philistine and killed him. David ran, stood over him, and he took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from his sheath, and he cut off, and then he killed him and he cut off his head. Isn't that awesome? I think it's pretty awesome. I told you about this book last week called A Tale of Three Kings. Gene Edwards says this at the start of this battle. He says, beginning empty-handed alone frightens the best of men. It also speaks volumes of just how sure they are that God is with them. David goes and grabs five stones. Some of you are going to ask me, so I'm just going to get ahead of the emails now. Why five stones? One theory is that Goliath actually had four brothers, 1 Kings 22, I think it is. So maybe it was like, I'm going to go take out the whole family. Maybe it was five stones because he's a realist, and he says, if I miss, I want to have some extra ammo, and five's the most that can fit in his little shepherd fanny pack thing. Some people say, well, five stones, uh, is that the number of grace? Five is the number of grace all throughout Scripture. Whenever five is referenced, does that mean that God is doing an act of grace here? I don't know. Here's the thing. That's not the point. The point is not to argue and bicker and try to answer what did the five stones represent because that's not the point of the story. David goes to battle and Goliath says, I'm not no dog here. You're coming at me with a little boy and a stick. Goliath is offended. And David says to him, you have a big sword, but my God is bigger. You have a strong shield, but my God is stronger. Your army, or your armor is heavy duty, but the word of the Lord pierces anything. And he gets out his sling, and he gets out one of those five smooth stones. And this isn't like a little rubber band gun or a little pea shooter that he's like, pew, pew, pew. They can hurl these things 120 miles an hour with pinpoint accuracy into the forehead of Goliath, he falls down, he doesn't have a sword, he runs into battle, takes his own sword, ha! And they're actually going to hold on to Goliath's head as a trophy. And Saul is watching this whole thing happen. Who is that? Was, was, Was that David? Just a shepherd who believes in the honor of God, 
who's now joining your family. Last week, I talked about every single story in the life of David presents this tension. And this tension is the world looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. And on the outside of this story, we see a young man completely outmatched, a battle of insurmountable odds. As I said at the beginning, Goliath is not an allegory for life's troubles or problems or the stuff you are facing that have come your way. Why? It's because that would turn the story, the meaning, into an externally focused battle. Chapter 16, verse the, uh, 7, thesis of the life of David, it's not about the outside, it's about the inside. You see, the victory over Goliath is not a mediocre Bible story that helps you overcome life's biggest problems. Now, I'll caveat to say the Lord your God is with you. He does care about you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to navigate those things with you. And you can find that many, many other places. But that is not the point of this story today. That this is a strong and heavy narrative that reminds us there is a living God who must be honored. And if you live a life that honors him, he will do unthinkable things. But if you defy him, There is one road, and it's a road that leads to death. The focal point is not the cleverness or the bravery or the courage of David. The focus is the adequacy of God to be our strength in our weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I am weak, Christ makes me strong. That is the promise of Jesus, that when you feel most weak, when you feel most adequate in life, that is the prime spot for God to do amazing things in you if you choose to honor him over the external temptations of your life. When you feel most weak and inadequate, Jesus will be your strength. If you choose to focus on him instead of the things that are in front of you, what matters most is not do you have the best weapons, but do you have the real God on your side? You see, on the inside, the giant is those that defy the living God. The army of God defies God in this motion. Goliath himself defies God with his mouth and his heart. King Saul forgot what made him king in the first place. And from Bethlehem, a shepherd, an unlikely hero from an unlikely place, comes to be everyone's hero. His brother rejected his heart. His king attacked his past. The giant in front of him attacked his faith. And Israel needed a hero from an unlikely place, from someone who seemed weak and inadequate and not worthy to accomplish the job. A shepherd from Bethlehem. And you and I, just like the people of Israel, we too need a hero. We need a savior to conquer the biggest giant that lives inside of us all which is the giant that tells us to defy the living God. And we need a hero who is a shepherd from Bethlehem. And that hero's name is Jesus. David approaches and is victorious for one reason and one reason only, that there is no match for the living God. There's no match for the living God that led David to a life of faith. And here's what I want to wrap it up. Just three quick thoughts. Is that our battle cry in life and faith as well? 
There's a great commentary by a man by the name of Dale Ralph Davis on 1 Samuel. He says, the tragedy is that if someone were to hear our thoughts and words and the dangers and troubles, they would probably never guess that we had a living God. This idea of the dishonor of God is used seven times. That's eight, seven times in this narrative because it's painting the picture. The true giant that plagues us all is that we want to live a life focused on the externals and defy God and not honor him. And David overcomes that through the power of faith in a faith that honors God. So what does that look like? Three quick thoughts. Number one, that faith is born when we experience the living God. What has David said? He said, Saul, don't worry about it. For the God who saved me, then will save me now. He's got this. I've experienced that faith before and he will come through again. Ephesians chapter two talks about the gift of faith. That's why the story is not about a teenager who took down a giant that represents something. It's about does your faith real and move you to action? And then once we have that faith, it goes in one of two directions. Direction one, that faith can be sustained And the way we sustain faith is by honoring the living God with our life and with our choices. That once we have faith and we've experienced faith, it is sustained just like David when we choose to honor the living God. If you want to have a life and faith in the living God, you need to put it into practice. So when God says, carve out time for me in life, do you honor that request? When God says, here's what I want relationships and sex and sexuality to look like, do you honor that? When God says, here's how I want you to handle money in your homes, do you honor that? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to forgive. 70 times, I want you to give insurmountable times. That forgiveness starts when you stop counting. Will you honor that? If you want to have faith that is sustained, you need to make choices that honor the living God. That's the first way our faith can go. But the second way is that we abandon faith. Faith is abandoned when we reject the living God. See, what's the difference between David and Saul and those armies? It's not where they lived or where they came from or where they camped. The difference was what was in here. The proximity was the same. But their hearts were in a completely different direction. Pastorally, some of you this might be where you're at. You're in the right proximity of church. You're in the right proximity of other people. You might be in the proximity of a group or a cohort. You might be in the right proximity of other believers, but you have abandoned the living God. You've rejected him altogether. That your heart actually isn't in tune with him. The difference between David and the army of Saul was not where they were standing, it's where their hearts had been. And so let me remind us of how our hearts get to the right place and into the right camp to begin with. That is nothing other than what Jesus has done for you and I. We all need a savior. You cannot fight that battle on your own. You need a hero, a shepherd from the town of Bethlehem. And for the rest of the story of the life of David, it's not going to be, be like David. It's not going to be idolize Saul or don't idolize Saul. It's going to be, how's your heart? Are you worrying about the direction of your heart? And have you made that the priority of your life? Because when our hearts for God are our priority, everything else always seems to fall in line. What would it look like for you 
to make that your daily battle cry, to be a person who honors the living God. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Lord, we bow humbly at your feet. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of David, that while we are not trying to be like David, we want to glean from his life. Lord, I pray a a prayer of forgiveness in my own life for everybody here in Champaign or being online, wherever they're, or whenever they're watching this, that we can surrender over to you the ways in which we have become selfish, the ways in which we have focused on the externals, the way in which we have justified our temptations, the way in which we have defined you, whether we realize it or not, and that you are still good and gracious and loving to send us our hero from Bethlehem, and his name is Jesus, and he gives us a new heart. May we embrace it. May that transformation happen in our lives. And may we make that our priority to focus on you. May we have that battle cry that David had. Who dare defies the living God? For you have saved us then. And you will restore us now. Shame that we pray. Amen.